think of a king, what are some of the things that you might expect? What are some of the things you would expect that king to do? What are some of the things that you would expect that king to be, to, to look like, to act like? I think probably a lot of people would say, well, they expect that a king would live in uh, a, a big palace or a fortified castle up on a hill somewhere, right? At the very least, a fancy mansion. Kings are the people that have all kinds of servants, men and women who run around taking care of all of their daily necessities, right? Kings are also those that maybe lead the charge into battle or at least raise up armies and send them into battle in order to protect their borders from enemies and thus are also responsible and expected to provide peace, safety, prosperity for the people that live within their borders. I think maybe when we expect certain things from a king, we might expect them to maybe not be uh, necessarily loved and adored, but at least to be people of power, people that are worth a healthy degree of respect, right? Maybe even fear. Why? Because if I cross the king, if I cross the ruler, things might not go so well for me, right? He might use his power against me. Right? There are a lot of things that we might expect a king to do and to be and to look like. Well, today, in our final message from this series, Worthy is the Lamb, we are going to see a king in Jesus, only he is not like other kings of this earth. Jesus, we are going to see, is an entirely different class of king. He's a king that is not only worthy of our service and obedience, he's also a king who is worthy of our deepest love and loyalty. And so we're going to be learning about this king, our king Jesus, as we read this account of his procession into Jerusalem on this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. And we'll read all of those verses from Matthew 21 right now. As they approached Jerusalem, and they here would be Jesus and his entourage of disciples and other people that have followed him during his earthly ministry. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there's a word that if you've gone to church your entire life, or even if you've gone to church a good chunk of your life, you have maybe heard this word or even said, sung this word hundreds, if not thousands of times, and yet maybe don't actually know what it means. And I'm talking about the word Hosanna. 
Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew expression that literally means save us, okay? So if uh, you and your friend were treading water and about to drown in ancient Israel, maybe you would cry out Hosanna to the on-duty lifeguard, right? Save us. Well, over time, this word evolved to become an expression, uh, an acclamation even of honor and glory for somebody. Much in the same way that we use the phrase all hail today, all hail the chief, all hail the king and queen, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so that's what the people of Jerusalem cried out to Jesus as he came riding into their city on that donkey. And in doing so was fulfilling a prophecy that would have been very, very well known among them about the Messiah. The claim that Jesus is making in this is an unmistakable one. And the people knew it. It's that prophecy that we read in the book of Zechariah just a little bit ago, right? See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Finally, finally, the long-awaited Messiah is here. How then, in just a few days' time, could everything change so much? How could it happen that these cheering crowds with their shouts of acclamation would turn so quickly to jeering crowds with shouts of condemnation? I mean, what gives? Like, why the sudden turnaround? So much of it had to do with what the people were expecting from their Messiah and what they were expecting Jesus to be and to do for them. You see, they were expecting that Jesus was going to be like other earthly kings, that he was going to, to come into Jerusalem, storm in, establish his own throne, that he was going to raise up an army around himself, and that he would then oust all of their Roman oppressors. They expected Jesus to be the kind of king who issues edicts, the kind of king who, who leads his armies in the charge, the kind of king who levies taxes on his people and provides infrastructure for them so that they can be safe and secure and prosperous. That's what they were expecting. And I got to tell you, if that were the king that Jesus had come to be, his timing could not have been any more perfect for it. Not only were they on the cusp of the Passover, a highly nationalistic Jewish holiday, which saw many Jews from all over the Mediterranean world focused in on Jerusalem, but Pontius Pilate, their Roman governor, had also recently come to town. Now was the time to make a strong statement by either executing or at least expelling Pilate and the legion of soldiers that he kept with him. That's what the people were expecting. But their expectations were faulty and wrong. They were not expecting Jesus to be the king that he had come to be. And as the week went on, as the people realized this about Jesus, they turned on him. Right? When Jesus was not going to give them what they wanted, their loyalty came to an end. And that's because, and this is our first key point today, loyalty lasts only so long as expectations are met. 
And so if loyalty is based upon false expectations, if it is based upon unfounded expectations, like those Jews of Jerusalem had for Jesus, that loyalty is doomed to falter or to fail altogether. Now my question for you today is a simple one. Do you have faulty expectations of the king? Have you built up, and maybe you wouldn't outright state this, but have you built up in your mind and in your heart some picture of Jesus that he simply has not told you to expect? Have you built up some image of Jesus who will do things for you that he simply has not promised to do? Scott did. Now, Scott was the kind of guy who went to church his entire life. He sang the hymns to Jesus. He prayed the prayers to Jesus. He even led a Bible study or two about Jesus. But then one day, Scott's wife plainly told him that she didn't love him anymore. And when she subsequently divorced him and took the kids with her, his use for the king came to an end. Why? What, what was the problem? Scott had a faulty expectation of Jesus, namely that people who worshipped Jesus and who were faithful to Jesus as he was, well, that Jesus ought to ensure that such people have happy and blessed home lives, right? He was counting on Jesus to continue providing the domestic bliss that he enjoyed, and when that was gone, his loyalty to Jesus was gone too. Do you have faulty expectations? Do you expect perhaps, like Scott did, that Jesus ought to continue providing you with a prosperous and happy home life? With a spouse that never leaves and children that always love? Or do you expect perhaps that worshiping your king means that you should be able to, to, to have a secure financial picture in life, right? A, a secure job and always able to pay the bills on time that you won't struggle with money? Maybe you expect that Jesus should almost be like the guarantee against terrible illnesses, personal crisis, or the premature death even of somebody that you love and care about. Do you expect these things from Jesus? Do you expect perhaps that your king will overlook what he plainly calls sin? as though he should just be fine and dandy with whatever choices you make, that he should be all right with whatever sin you decide is okay for your life in your circumstances? Or at least maybe that he should let you hang on to a couple of the little ones. You see that the big ones are taken care of, but do you expect that he'll let you hold on to one or two of them, those things that you just don't want to let go of? I got to say, that's what a lot of people expect out of Jesus nowadays all of the love and none of the law, all the grace without any of the hard truth and cross. Not only has Jesus not told us to expect this, he tells us that's the exact opposite of what he wants for his people. Do you have faulty expectations? If you do, and if you hold on to those, you can ultimately only set yourself up for disappointment. Even worse, the possibility of turning your back 
on your king altogether. I want you to be clear here. I'm not talking about wanting Jesus to do something for you, wanting him to work in your life in some certain way. I'm talking here about an expectation as though it is mutually understood that Jesus ought to do this thing, that he ought to provide this thing for you in life. Because if we expect as a right what Jesus simply has not promised to give, as those people of Jerusalem did, it can only cause us to doubt his love, his goodness, or his power. Possibly all three. Really, there's a deeper issue here underneath the surface problem. And it's that we are all people of divided loyalty already. Right? There's a very real part of me called the sinful nature, sometimes we call it the sinful flesh, that does not want anything to do with Jesus being my king. That sinful flesh does not want to be loyal to Jesus one little tiny bit. And so I will set up all of these expectations about how my life should go, and then I will expect that Jesus ought to see that they happen, at least that the really big, really important things are mine. And then when those expectations are not met, my divided loyalty shows itself for what it is. My true colors, so to speak, will come pouring out of me in all kinds of bitterness and resentment at life, at God, perhaps even into a, an abandoning of that one true king altogether. We need to be aware of this. Because the reality is you would not be the first person to say goodbye to Jesus because he didn't meet your expectations of him. We need to be aware of this because Satan is constantly trying to use those false expectations against us to undermine that true king's rule in our hearts. Just as he did, again, for those Jews of Jerusalem that cried out, Hosanna in the highest on Palm Sunday, and then shouted, Crucify, Crucify on Good Friday. But do you know what I find really incredible in all of this? Is that Jesus, who knows all of this, goes riding into Jerusalem anyway. Riding on that donkey, fulfilling every last prophecy about the Messiah amidst this sea of people whom he wept over not an hour earlier. Because he knows their divided loyalties and their half-heartedness, just as he knows your selfish expectations and my divided loyalty, and yet Jesus goes riding into Jerusalem anyway. It's because Jesus is of a different class of king altogether, isn't he? Christ's loyalty remains even when the subjects are disloyal. 
This sets him apart from every king, emperor, prime minister, or president, because even when the people revolt against him, his loyalty remains as unwavering as ever before. Because that is how great his love is. That even when their love for him dries up and dies, he remains fixed and firm in what he is going to do. The son of David has come down from highest heaven. God Almighty has taken on the weakness of mortal human flesh. And why? So that the king can rescue the disloyal subjects from their own self-made destruction. And in the coming week, especially on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, we will see just how far his loyalty for us will go. We will see the king betrayed, arrested, put on trial for fabricated crimes, convicted by false testimonies. We will see his face become wet with spit and reddened with the open-palmed blows of his accusers. And even though he has the power to destroy all of them with a single word, the king will remain silent, not even uttering a defense against those accusations. The king will then go on another trial before a second-rate governor named Pontius Pilate, whose puny power was limited to this backwater province called Judea. And even though Pilate himself would proclaim Jesus innocent, he would condemn Jesus to die as one of the guilty. This king will be made into a mockery, dressed in a filthy purple robe. He will wear no crown of gold on his head. Rather, it will be a crown of cruel and twisted thorns that his mockers will embed down into the flesh of his skull. And yet the king rides anyway. He rides to do everything that he has planned from eternity to do. To suffer every pain, to endure every agony, to brave every injustice, to grieve every sorrow, and then, at the end of it all, to ascend not onto a throne of iron or gold, but to ascend to a splintery and rough-hewn cross of wood. Where the crowds would no longer shout Hosanna, but would jeer at him with taunts of, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come down from that cross and save yourself? But the king cannot. He will not. He is resolved. He is loyal. And so he will stay right where he is and die. The shepherd for the sheep who love to wander. The king for the subjects who rebelled. I want you to think again about those faulty expectations that the Jews of Jerusalem had for their Messiah. More importantly, I want you to think about some of the faulty expectations that may be lurking in your own heart. Things that you expect Jesus to be and to do for him to truly be worthy in your mind of your praise and honor and devotion. And then I want you to consider that those expectations utterly pale in comparison 
with the king that Jesus actually came to be. You see, Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. He's way too good for that. No, Jesus exceeds those expectations by far. And here's the kicker. Those people expected that he was going to ascend to a throne, that he would then rise up in power, that he would use the armies that he called to his side to expel all of those Romans. Instead, what did Jesus do? Something that no king has done before and that no other king ever will. He rose up to a cross and died there. And then he rose again from the dead back to life again. I mean, if you want to talk about exceeding expectations here. And Jesus does this not just to deliver his people from the hands of some temporary political enemies. No, he does this to deliver you and me from the hands of our eternal enemies, the enemies of our very souls. This king that we killed died so that our guilt, the guilt that crushes our, con- our consciences, would be wiped out for good. This king brings to us a new home at our father's side, in place of the old hellish home where Satan was our cruel master. This king breathes life into our dead spirits, spirits that were, that were dead in transgressions and sins. That is what this king brings to you and me, even promising that one day he will raise our bodies after they have been dead and rotted away for hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, think of the very best, the very absolute best that any earthly ruler or government could ever give you. They might be able to lower taxes to a manageable amount, but you'll still probably struggle with money at times. They might be able to provide a relative degree of safety, but grocery store gunmen and break-ins still happen. They might be able to govern some order to the chaos, but car crashes and other freak accidents still occur. And you know what? Even if they manage to keep you safe and warm and well-fed for 80, 90 years, there is still a casket waiting at the end of all of it that has your name on it. But Christ... Our king who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he guarantees, and because he guarantees it, you can absolutely expect this from him and know with confidence that he will deliver. He guarantees eternal joy and everlasting peace in those heavenly halls of our Father's mansion. Now let me ask you, Is that king worth your loyalty? Is that king worthy of your praise, your devotion, your honor? Even if you don't get everything you ask for in prayer, even if you don't get some of the really, really big important things, that king is still worthy of your prayers, isn't he? Even if you wake up tomorrow morning and realize that your spouse is not going to be waking up with you and in fact is never going to wake up again, that king is still worthy of your deepest trust. Even when that sin is pulling against you so fiercely, that that, that pleasure that you so badly want to indulge in, that king is still worth your obedience. Even when you wonder why God hasn't lifted you up out of your anxiety or your depression, that king is still worthy of being your truest and best go-to source of comfort. 
that king is worthy forever and for always because he is the king who gave up everything in order to give you everything. So ride on, King Jesus, ride on, Son of David, ride on, Christ, Messiah, Savior, you who comes in the name of the Lord, ride on, ride on to your final fiercest battle, ride on to your betrayal, ride on to your suffering, ride on to your crucifixion. Ride on, Lord of life, to die. Ride on, ride on, dearest friend and worthy king, until that stone is rolled away and we see death itself undone. Ride on. Amen. Amen.